Oh, just shot up the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane alongside Dale Clancy. And this week we'll be chatting to the ex-Kelso, South, Scotland and Lions wing, Roger Baird. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Let's take a look then at this week's tight five topics. And as always, we include a segment about the performances of Edinburgh and Glasgow. And of course, on Monday evening, Glasgow were up against Munster at Scotston in very blustery conditions. It proved to be a very feisty 80 minutes, as it often is between these sides. But Dale, Danny Wilson still searching for that second win of the season. That's five defeats now from six matches. And he was really down to the bare bones when you look at the strength and depth of the squad. A lot of players coming in on short-term loans. And I think accounted something like 22 unavailable through injury or international commitments. We bang the same drum every week, really, in terms of the professional teams and how depleted they are when the international games are on. It's really evident in the results. There's been some reasonable improvements, but the players and the quality probably once these international quality players leave it's probably just not good enough you look at the names like Pete Horn playing 10 he's a seasoned professional he's a, a really good pro he's international experience as well Sean Kennedy he's played a lot of Scotland 7s but that's a that's a relatively lightweight in terms of name and stature, in, t- in terms of a halfback pairing, and they're your spine to help drive that team forward. And, you know, I think they're certainly, you know, having to bleed a lot of different and new combinations, and it's going to take a while to settle, but I still am a, a bit of a believer in terms of the longer picture. These players all need time to prove what they can do. They don't all set the header light like Stuart Hogg does, or players like Finn Russell took a bit of time to bed in. They've all had bad games and bad experiences, so out of the teams that we've got and the, the squads that have been selected there'll be a few good players in a few years to come and they'll be better for it but at the moment the going is certainly tough for both professional teams Glasgow obviously getting defeated by Munster but there's sprinklings of good in there they've got some experienced players who maybe you know like to Glenn Bryce he's been a good pro he's been a good sevens player as well but he's, he's never really made that next step but he's you know helping the younger guys coming through like to Kennedy and, and Horn as well and Ryan Wilson he's captain in the side you know these players are really helping nurture and mature the next brand of players that are going to come through for Edinburgh and Glasgow and and certainly Danny Wilson he's got a really difficult job when the international games are on is to keep the continuity and the results coming for our professional teams You mentioned there uh, Ryan Wilson I think he's been an ever present since the World Cup for Glasgow of course he was yellow carded in the game so too was Billy Holland the two Munster captains carded maybe that in itself an illustration of the, the type of game that it turned out to be We'll move on to the international scene and, and look at Scotland against France, losing out to France in the Autumn Nations Cup in a game that for an hour Scotland were very much in the contest. But both sides after an hour, the, their game plan seemed to unravel and it became very untidy and very towsy. And while Scotland right through to the end of the game still had a chance to get something from the match, I think that that period in the final quarter, they'll maybe look at that and think that they perhaps had some missed opportunities there to have tested a French side that themselves were certainly off the boil. Some of the decision-making was curious from both teams. France probably never played the brand of rugby that we've 
been seen from them in recent weeks but I think that's a lot of testament towards the way that Scotland approached the game as well but it's one of those games that we just didn't control you know I'd said off the back of last week we've got to a position where Scotland control the game and our discipline just completely went the fact that we were out muscled in, in physicality in forwards and backs that puts a doubt in your mind I don't really care what level you play at if it's international or, or amateur if you're getting out muscled and out like your confrontation you're losing that battle you're going to creep a little bit more you're going to have a little bit of doubt in your defensive capabilities because you're getting overawed by the sheer physicality and I think that's what crept into Scotland's game I think we imposed ourselves against Wales a few weeks back and, and we were able to be physical we were able to match them in physicality but when the French team that came up they just battered us up front for certainly the first 40 minutes then it did start to settle a little bit then they started again and I think it probably took Scotland about 60 minutes to actually think hey we're still in this we've actually got a chance to win this game and it is it's individual errors people are banging on about Stuart Hogg but people miss kicks to touch and I know it's criminal and I know you shouldn't be doing that but if that goes five metres out we get the line out and we get the draw the guy's a hero and he's made a mistake people make mistakes at work all the time and he's certainly made one there so it doesn't need to be dwelled on but I feel that Scotland maybe just didn't have enough confidence in their ability to win that game from the way that France came out I think they came out and imposed themselves quite early and really controlled the game from that point until it did start to unravel after about 60-65 minutes Now from the international scene to the club game or lack of it for season 2021 perhaps an opportunity for the club's to look at various aspects of how they're run. They're not necessarily going to have any competitive fixtures, but there's a a clean slate for a lot of clubs to come back to competitive action at some point in 2021. There may well be some regional matches, some derby games played in some form before a, a newly structured season does start at some point next year. But it's the news that I suppose, Dale, we've been expecting for some time. Other countries have made similar decisions and it will be interesting just to see how clubs will adapt, will adjust in terms of maybe the number of coaches they look to recruit and their squad sizes and things like that because COVID is bound to take its toll and and it might take a little bit of time before clubs get back to where they were before. It's almost the news, you know, everybody knew but they were too afraid to kind of admit it. I think everybody was quite hopeful that there'd be some level of rugby but because we do national leagues it's a national game we rely on different regions and I know down in the borders where I'm from it's it, our tier system we've been relatively lucky with cases because we're so rural but other areas aren't the same so you know clubs can't travel the national league is, is not really an option so it, yeah it's quite unfortunate there's still loads more questions than answers player retention will clubs survive what will the season look like when we go after the only fortunate thing is that the fact that the kind of invitation team that we've got the Red Yarrows have went two seasons unbeaten now because we never played sevens last year and it doesn't look like we're going to be playing sevens this year so yeah two seasons unbeaten but no it's it's a difficult thing for clubs now you know they, they rely on supporters and it's not just players it's not just coaches it's the supporters as well and the supporters who have spent their years building these clubs and making an environment for them it's these supporters that rely on the club game as well so it's disappointing that it's, it's not going to happen this year or this season but you know overall it's probably the, the right decision unfortunately for the greater good and making sure that we can try and get through this and get out to the other end Yeah in terms of your own situation then Dale every cloud has a silver lining Definitely yeah <laughs> Yeah, I want to take the, the situation with the clubs and just move it in a, a slightly different direction now, Dale. When we look at the clubs in the community and how 
they've continued to interact with their local communities during a period where they can't invite members of the public in to watch them play competitively. And this particular project has been around for some considerable time, so it predates COVID. But you look at what is happening down in Hoyk with their Hoyk Memories Initiative, and that's driven by the club. And that, again, is looking to try and provide support to individuals and families of individuals who are battling dementia and Alzheimer's. And they will invite speakers to come along. uh, They will hold events. At the moment, clearly, they're they're virtual events. But just, again, an opportunity for memories of the game, memories of events in the town, memories of people that have played the game in all parts of the world to be shared by you know a group of people who clearly appreciate that and that again is is giving back to the community and that's one of many examples i think it is important to highlight that the, the clubs haven't switched off the lights locked the gates and gone into hibernation one huge thing from covid is the emphasis on mental health now movember's going you can see that there's there's obviously community spirits in that. You know, it does highlight the, the importance of mental health. And as I said before, I was talking about players and coaches and their well-being, but the supporters who help build these clubs, it's huge for them. And that initiative for Hoik is a great, great thing to try and maintain that community spirit because it doesn't matter if rugby's your hobby or anything else, if it's flower arranging and going to coffee mornings, if it's it, it, whatever age or, or gender you are, everybody has hobbies or most people have hobbies and they need some way during this to try and get that outlet and every social occasion that we've really had has, has been lost and, and these little bits that, that clubs like Hoyk are managing to help provide to their supporters and their communities, yeah, it's a, it's a great initiative and it's been able to try and decipher what and see what people are doing through the kind of haze that is COVID news at the moment but you know there's a lot going on and a lot of good work from a lot of clubs just trying to keep a real foothold in the community and, and try and keep people going it clearly has been a very very difficult time for the elite female Scottish side with Brian Easton coming in engineering a, a, a brilliant draw against France that we've talked about in previous podcasts but then because of the, the Covid situation again have been unable to try and build on that With the, the, the game against Wales was then uh, cancelled the, their Six Nations campaign came to a very abrupt halt. At the moment, they don't know the, the side that they're going to play to reach the Women's World Cup in 2021. But what they do know and what we have learned is they will avoid England and France if they are successful in reaching the Women's World Cup in New Zealand in 2021. I mean, that would be a fantastic achievement for the women. It would, again, just identify that the progress that has been made that uh, they can reach and be playing that level of opposition in a a competitive world stage. And they're one game away, but in the the frustrating position of not knowing who the team is that they'll play and when they'll play the match. It's a big achievement if they're able to progress and get to the World Cup. They will be bitterly disappointed they weren't able to, to back up the draw against France who run England close it was a last minute try from England to win that game so Scotland are progressing and I think that's a huge thing I think you know you're listening to the men's national team and and they talk about opportunities opportunities to win or opportunities to make strides 
the main buzzword with the, the women's national team is progress, is making sure that they start to make these small strides to give them a place on the rugby map and, and women's rugby. And, and I think we're we're probably guilty as, as humans of, of wanting change now. We just want the end result straight away. But if you look at where women's rugby was 10 years ago, it's, it's absolutely nowhere near to where it is now. It's like when you look at like uh, women's football in England. Now, 10, 15 years ago, yeah, you would have probably been able to catch a game, but I don't know what on, ch- on what channel. Where now, it is everywhere. The, the FA Cup final is on terrestrial TV, and you've got a platform, and that is what it's about. If it is accessible to the public, it makes the game more attractive, and you'll get more intake from females to, to play the game. And, and certainly that is a, a part of the progress for the women's national game, but it comes with getting to national competitions and world competitions to compete for trophies and honours and and certainly this is a a small stride towards getting that progress. And we certainly wish the team very well as as they hope to reach the World Cup next year and with one match to play they will then make the finals and a fantastic experience that will be for Brian Easton's side so good luck to them. That is the tight five topics for this week. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to say that this week we head down to Poinder Park and back to a period in the 1980s when Kelso at the Melrose Sevens final was something of an annual occasion. And one of their stars playing in the famous black and white hoops, he would go on and win 27 Scotland caps, feature at the Hong Kong Sevens and for the British and Irish Lions. Joining us today, Roger Baird. Lovely to see you, Roger. Thank you, Stuart. In terms of your rugby background then take us back to when it all began for you at, at Kelso because it, it goes beyond or, or further back rather than, than you just simply coming as a, a really talented teenager and starting in the first team your father had strong connections with the club that's right uh, my father played uh, initially for the Tunians and then he came to the, to the borders and uh, settled there met my mum and played for Kelso Captain Kelso and was president of Kelso as well, so you know he had a lifelong association with uh, with the club. You would then be around a lot of characters at the club. You would see as a young boy what it was all about to be in the, in the home dressing room and preparing for the game or an, at the aftermath of a game. Give us a, a little flavour of what it was like because I'd imagine back in those days there'd be some interesting individuals associated with the club. I think you had a, a dentist who was your club doctor. That, that's that's correct, and, and actually. Most of the players wouldn't go to the dentist as a doctor because he was terrible on the stitching. So they went to Ian Gillespie, who was a vet. <laughs> and he, would, he, would, uh, he would stitch them and he would actually stitch himself rather than have the dentist. So, no, but the dentist was a, a man, Jim Trainer, who was a lovely man and uh, gave great service to the club. You mentioned sevens and whatever. You know, Kelso had a very, very good seven in that time of Jimmy Fleming, Ian Gillespie mentioned. Andrew Kerr was playing back then. But, uh, you know, they won quite a number of uh, tournaments and we were always there. You know, I was always supporting Kelso from the touchline with my dad and whatever. So we had some great times, you know, up at Hoyk and uh, Jed and wherever. So it, it, was, it, was a, it was a great time to, to grow up and be around the club. When you were an established player, you were a, a powerful runner. You, you had obviously that speed, but that power as well. Was there ever a, a, a chance, the likelihood that you'd get lost and go to athletics? Or were you very much driven to become a rugby player, first and foremost? I think, first and foremost, it was always rugby. And I feel so sorry for the kids at the moment. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, we used to get a lot of games cancelled because of frost and whatever. And 
if I had a game cancelled and all the boys were the same, you know, you live for your game of rugby or your two games of rugby a week, you know, that was just uh, meat and drink to you. And I just feel so sorry for the youngsters at the moment because I know how badly affected I would have been if I wasn't getting my rugby. So no athletics, I, I did, you know, I, I did quite a bit of athletics as well, but rugby was, was always the thing, you know, that's what you live for. And you were known as a, a player that burst on the scene at, at a young age and you built up a lot of experience at a very early stage because I think at, at one time you actually could boast more South appearances than Kelso appearances. I did, actually, yeah. Well, I was still at school when we won the first Melrose Sevens, you know, so that was the first time the club had ever won it in its history. So it was a kind of momentous day. And uh, so I was sort of travelling back from school from Edinburgh, uh, Boschka, deceased. And then it kind of took off from there. I played in a game for the rest of the South against Hoyk. I was actually played in the centre. I had to mark Alistair Cranston, which wasn't wasn't a lot of fun. Alistair was a very strong bull-like uh, centre, you know. We played many times for Scotland in the South. And then the South went on tour to Cornwall, which was just... Oh, I mean, uh, you know, it was uh, it was like landing on the moon for me. You know, we went in a Nichols bus from Hoyk, which I think could do about 35 miles an hour tops, all the way to Cornwall. I mean, it took us about three days. To get <laughs> 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 we had a couple of games down there, one at Red Ruth, and you know, played Cornwall, whatever. And, uh, and at that time, it, it was amazing. You know, I was the only player that I didn't know because they were all internationalists. You know, so. So I was probably playing with 14 internationalists at that stage. And it was just fantastic. And some of the greats of Scottish rugby. Playing for the South was an absolute honour, actually. I'm so sorry that, you know, we don't have district representation uh, at the moment. I think I would really like to see that come back. But playing for the South was a massive, massive honour. I think it did prepare players for that next step up to the international game. The way that the district rugby was structured at that time and there was clearly a sort of stepping stone going from club to south to Scotland and, and the same with Edinburgh and Glasgow districts. And But I, I want to quickly ask you about something you sort of touched on there was that the travelling for yourself coming down from Edinburgh to Kelso. Now, you starred for 12 years, I think, at Kelso. Yeah. Alan Tomes played for Hoyk for about 147 years and he was, he was going from Gateshead to Hoyk. I mean, a lot of players showed tremendous commitment to clubs when there was no money around the game at the time. I mean, it was just pure passion and drive and commitment that, that ensured that they would stick around. Toomba, big Toomba had, uh, you know, all six feet, six inches of him. He had a wee Morris Minor, which <laughs> he travelled from Gosford to Hoyt, you know, which would be, I mean, that must have been a two-hour journey. And he would do it three times a week often. And he did that for 16 years. You know, he never thought about, you know, playing for anybody else. He just loved playing for Hoyek. And, you know, Hoyek was such a, a fantastic team then. And, you know, brilliant coaches, Derek Grant, who was a, you know, was a lion and everything. And they just, they had it so right. And they had a conveyor belt of magnificent players. So Toomba wasn't going to play for anybody else. But, you know, that, that commitment and, you know, he would be, getting a bit for his petrol, that would be it. Sad that that's maybe disappeared a bit. I have to say as well that from your own point of view, what a, an opportunity for a, an impressionable youngster to come in in the early 1980s to the international stage, having produced fine performances for Kelso and for the South, to then come into that international arena at that time. Because when you made your debut against Australia in 1981, a lot of people 
sort of looking back on the game, felt that there was around about that time that the seeds were sown for a Grand Slam Championship challenge, which obviously materialised in 1984. Can you give us a flavour of what it was like in the early 80s to be around that Scotland team? Oh, I mean, it was it was a hugely special time and uh, first cap against Australia and, you know, and we won, you know, and moved into the Five Nations, which it was then. And I suppose they marked, uh, I think we drew it home with England that year and, and, and we beat Wales, of course, in Wales. 36-18 and that was just an amazing an amazing day you know for, 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 for Scottish supporters because we hadn't won down there for, for years in fact there was a chap from Long Nidri who had a Bentley and he watched the game with his wife and at the end of the game he says right I'm just going out to get a pint of milk you see and he phoned about seven hours later from Cardiff to say I couldn't have missed this one I'm down for the- so you just gone down for the celebrations Correct, correct. You know, he said he had to go down and he had to be there. So, you know, there was all sorts of stories like that. And it was just, it was, it was a great time. You know, you mentioned the, the Grand Slam of 84. What was pretty major to that too was that there was eight of us that went on the Lions tour the previous summer to New Zealand. And I think what you realise then, you know, Scots always have a complex, uh, inferiority complex. Uh, I always think people do it better than we do and they're better than us. And, when we were close to these guys and, and playing with them, we, we re- realised that we were as good as them. And I think that self-belief came through. And poor Jim Telford had a terrible time during that Lions tour. And, you know, we lost the Test Series 4-0, but we were so amateur in those days. I mean, we didn't even have a backs coach then. Scotland had a backs coach, but the Lions didn't. It was a really difficult tour for, for Jim, and he was pretty close to packing it in at that stage. But... The boys, you know, particularly Roy and, and John Rutherford, talked him round to, to come back. And, and, of course, he was major to everything that we did. Did Jim's personality change during the tour or did you find that going out straight away because he, he was then in overall charge of, of players from four different nations, did he take on a, a slightly different role in terms of how he would present himself to, to the players? Because he'd be so familiar to the, the Scottish boys but the English, Welsh and Irish contingent in that Lions tour would perhaps be maybe wary of him or uncertain of his, his methods. Jim's hard but fair. What he did do is he said, right, boys, we're all doing the same thing. So we're rucking. And, you know, England at that time would do the cuddly malls and all that sort of stuff. And Ireland and Wales were probably a wee bit similar. But, you know, we went to a rucking game. Jim was a great studier of New Zealand rugby, and, and that, that he, he held them in, in the highest regard, and that was the idea. But I just, you know, it, it was quite difficult. We had the issues with the captaincy, uh, uh, Kieran Fitzgerald, nice guy, and all the rest of it. But what you've got to do in alliance to where your captain is, you've got to make sure he's a dead cert pick, that he picks himself in the team. Ultimately, the, you know, the last time was Sam Warburton, Sam Warburton did the right thing for the team and stepped back, magnificent player, and then came back for the final test. And, you know, they were, it was horses for courses. That, that's what they were picking. But it was just, it was a bit of a shame. And New Zealand were, were always a better side. But I think just with a wee bit more planning and maybe some selection differences, you know, people like David Leslie not going on that tour, it was just, that was a crime against rugby because he was such an outstanding talent. And, of course, you know, would have done so well out there. So there was a whole load of reasons there. And, you know, I did feel very sorry for Jim because, you know, it's a very public arena 
to fail in, and you know he, he took he took that really badly. But I th- you know I think he had, had his hands tied behind his back. To be honest. Yeah, go, going out with it sounds like very limited resources, and you know a, a lot a lot of the. The, the, the cards that he was dealt certainly were not favourable for a, a game of poker, you could say. Correct, correct. You can always look in hindsight and say things should have been done differently, but there was a wee bit of an Irish, uh, let's say, overall control there. Poor Cairn, he became very reclusive as the tour went on because his farm, his own farm wasn't good and Colin Deans would, would be one of the best hookers in the world at that stage. 83, you, you're talking there about your Lions experience. You had almost, if the reports are correct, you know, an almost near-death experience after the England-Scotland game because I understand that uh, some of your teammates took it upon themselves. I don't, I don't for one minute believe you had anything to do with this, but they charged some drinks to the room of the current England captain who was obviously nursing his wounds having suffered a home defeat to the rampaging Scots. And when he discovered that it, the, the drinks tab was enormous, he started pacing the corridors looking for men in kilts. And I think you were the unfortunate soul that he first clapped eyes on. And uh, is, is it urban myth or were your legs dangled? No, no, no. It, was, it was pretty true. And it was a monster pill because we put all our drinks for the evening on. Was John Scott was the England captain. He, remember me, Mustachio Boy, I think he, he played in Wales most of his rugby anyway. But we were actually in his suite. So the England captain got the penthouse suite at the Hilton Hotel in London. So very central, massive suite. And we were up there having a drink in his room. And then he must have found out about his bill. Anyway, bearing in mind it was a top floor, but about 25 stories up, he picked me up and hung me right over the balcony. So you know, so I, although the drink had been taken, I didn't try and struggle at all. I just thought, just wait for this to be over and get back in again. But Do you maybe get up during the night in a cold sweat, wake up in a cold sweat during the night every so often at the thought of that. The 83 becomes obviously 84 and there's the Grand Slam success. The Triple Crown is clinched in early March uh, over in Dublin. There's the Keith Robertson try that is quite often shown. The euphoria, I think, afterwards, after that Triple Crown success was significant. But also, there must have been a real belief that we can go all the way here. We've got a home game against France and we we can write ourselves into rugby folklore with another win. Yeah, well, you know, the side was excellently captained by Jim Aiken, you know, and Jim... You know, Jim will never take a step back. He's got ultimate belief in himself and whatever, and filter down through the, the team. It was actually, if you remember, Stuart, the game was shown during the first lockdown, and I remember it being an awful game. I mean, the French team were totally outstanding, you know. I mean, the game was a shocker. Uh, I mean, I watched it, you know, uh, again and just forgot how bad it was. I actually got injured after... 10 minutes tackling Blanco and I got his knee to my head and, and I couldn't see and if, if you kind of watch the match I'm waving to the bench all the time saying look I can't see and you know, you know it's bad enough with working eyes when you're marking these guys but you know one and I was kind of concussed as well but anyway it passed and they just they must have said look just we thought so I did stay on but um, you know watching the game they only started moving it right at the very end and they started putting it through through the hands and you know they should have been doing that from the start I mean it was appalling 
every uh, it was just kicked to death and we, we we were the same you know and i think that was obviously you know the main thing for us was to win it and get the grand slam and it didn't matter how we did it but it was easily the worst game of our grand slam uh, you know there'd been some really quite entertaining games but that was it was a bit of a shocker you get the adulation of the murrayfield crowd and you enjoy i'm sure a, a night a weekend of celebration that will live long in the memory because you had written yourselves into to folklore and did you fully appreciate at the time the significance of it or is it one of those that you look back on afterwards and think blimey that was a big deal yeah i i, I don't know if you do appreciate it at the time i think you know, everybody's like that. You, you know, you, you're going through your life. And I think we did kind of realise, you know, how how big it was uh, for the country. You know, it, it, it's, it was the first time since, what was it, 1925. So, so it, was, it, was, it, it, was, it was special. And, you know, rugby in Scotland then was, was really uh, on the up. And, it, uh, you know, the club game was in great health. There was loads of people turning out and, you know, the rugby clubs were the best place to be on a Saturday night and the rugby clubs were still getting tickets then, you know, uh, to get started and all that. But you actually had real rugby people at all the games and it was special. And and, and I think how it sort of touched some people probably surprised you a wee bit, actually, and just how how important it was to them. So you're lucky that you're there, you're lucky that you're not injured and you never take it for granted. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think that was probably... Part of the beauty of that team, you know, we had a, a lot of really good boys, honest boys who put the work in, but there was nobody, nobody away with themselves, you know. It almost happened two years later as well. In 86, there was that wonderful oh, performance yeah, against yeah. England and uh, the, uh, the, there was a, opportunities that you, you oh, could have almost grabbed that yeah. second one two years later. Sure, that was the best rugby that I played. That was Ian McGeekin's first year as coach. You know, I would always say that the rugby we played in 86 was the best rugby that Scotland played during my time. And I actually got more ball that season than I did, you know, in about three or four seasons put together. It was just fantastic. And, you know, we walloped England at home. That's fantastic. And we we outscored Wales and Cardiff uh, three tries to two. But Paul Thorburn kicked two penalties from his own half, you know, and that's what pipped us. And it was it was such a shame because, you know, we, we uh, won the championship and then there was no bonus points then. I think we probably shared the championship then. I think we shared it. So there was nothing to differentiate between the teams. But honest to goodness, that was just fantastic rugby in 86. As a forerunner then to the, the first World Cup, of course, in, in 87, you were going in, you, you talked about... Uh, the sport very much being on the up. It must have been very exciting then to, to go into a World Cup that had been so well organised. You would know that this was the, the start of something new in the game. The game was going to be shown globally. It was a global game. It was going to start off in New Zealand with the World Cup in 87. What was that like then to be part of? Uh, it's actually the World Cup. It was a disappointing uh, event for me personally. And about there's about six of us that didn't play in New Zealand at all. So, you know, we were amateur then. It was all my annual leave. You know, we were away for about five weeks, six weeks or whatever, and we didn't play. And if you're on a tour and you don't play, you just don't feel part of it. You know, it's like you're an outsider and, uh, you know, playing is everything. And I I was pretty bitter about that, actually, because if I'd known I wasn't going to play, I wouldn't have gone. And the management said at the outset, which I, I still reckon was such a poor and amateurish decision. They said they were going to play their strongest side in every game in the World Cup. 
Now, at that stage, I was having injury problems. Ivan Tuchel was playing very well and was genuinely first pick. But they should have been rotating and using the whole squad, particularly in the, in the weaker games. And they didn't do that. And by the time we got to the quarterfinal against New Zealand, our guys were knackered. They were carrying injuries and, you know, they weren't getting enough recovery time. You know, you're playing, you know, whatever we played up to that point, the quarterfinals, five internationals in two or three weeks or whatever. So it was a, it was a massive mistake. And a lot of us actually, because we weren't getting game time, we kind of went off tour, actually. What then followed, though, was, was it some compensation or, or something of a pick-me-up to go back to Kelso and then very quickly win championships? Because at that point, Kelso's will come on to were seen as this fabulous seven side and a very competitive 15s team. But to end the 80s with domestic championship success, that must have been very significant and important to you, having had all the the success with Scotland, to suddenly be able just to cap it off with some titles at Poinder Park. Absolutely. And winning the championship then, you know, there were some fantastic sides about And, you know, you had the very good Sterling county side that came after us and I think won the, the championship uh, the, you know after we had won it for two years we, we also had a, you know, a great nucleus of players and we had international players with Eric Paxton John Jeffrey Andrew Kerr all with international experience Alan Tate myself and, and then guys who played for the South Bob Hogarth the person I was going to mention mostly who was the most influential player in that was Gary Callender and Gary Callender uh, not only as a, as a captain, but as a coach, as a studier of the game. You know, he had a fantastic rugby brain, does still have a fantastic rugby brain, uh, Gary. And him allied to Charlie Stewart, who had been a Scotland player out of Kelso as well. Charlie was our coach. Charlie just kind of used Gary and, and, and let him take the sessions for the forwards or whatever. And, you know, our pack, we were a match for anybody at that stage. And, you know, we had some fantastic players in there, you know, unseen warriors like Rob Cow, big second row. And Gary would probably stand on him at the beginning of my game just to make sure he was angry, you know, <laughs> and blame it on the opposition. And then he would go, you know, and, and great front rows, Adam Marshall and just boys all over, you know, Nick Minto in the back row and whatever. And, you know, you in common, um, Sandy Thompson on the wing, uh, Marshall right go back. Just gems all over the place and good reserves, you know, which is what you need. And you know, we played some great, great rugby uh, in those two years. And it, and it was, it was, it was fitting for all the players and and Charlie Stewart and for the club actually to, to win the championship at a time when it was very difficult to do so. Yeah, it, it it would have been so easy, I suppose, for the players with all that potential and a really good squad just to fall short, but to actually to do it and to to go through a season and to be so hard to beat and, and rack up as many consecutive wins. Uh, in, in a town like Kelso as well, who were really buying into it, because I remember my father and my uncle going the season you first won the championship on that final day and coming back and said, experience in the atmosphere, they, they travelled over from Duns, said it was something incredible to be part of that, the, the community coming out and the euphoria. And again, maybe in a, in a smaller way, in, in terms of a microscopic sense, that the, the same atmosphere and, and the, the same sense of pride as was felt in Murrayfield in 1984. Uh, absolutely, Stuart. You know, the things that you do with your club, uh, you know, are the, are, are the most important. And, you know, I always learned through, you know, particularly with my South 
career, you know, mixing with the Hoik and the Gala boys and whatever. And the Hoik boys particularly, you know, the club was, you know, playing for the Greens was, that was number one priority. And they would never call off a game for an international coming up the pipe or anything. It was, it was Hoik first and foremost. So, yeah, it's difficult for people to understand now, but... You know, games at Kelso, you almost sell out crowds at Kelso. You know, you, you couldn't get anybody else in. When we went away, we would take three supporters' buses with us to places like Stirling Air. You know, it was a whole day away. It was just amazing. You know, and when people look at club rugby now, I mean, it's such a shame that, mm. uh, you know, there's hardly anybody watching, but we don't have any club rugby at the moment. But club rugby's taken such a knock and really a hope that we can get back to, you know, clubs. Because it's not just playing rugby, you know, it's the whole social thing. It's the whole social fabric, particularly in somewhere like the Borders, where people come together uh, in, in, a, in a joint cause and have real fun. And you learn so much about who you are. You learn good human behaviour from getting there in time to being loyal, to looking after your mates, you know, all the important things, all your life lessons. And that is what, you know, we're really missing out on now is that club rugby has been ignored by those at the top of the game. And it's a crying shame. I hope it does recover and we don't lose clubs um, you know, to, to this pandemic and to you know, the indifference that has been shown over the years. I want to go back to the week running up to the second Grand Slam success for Scotland and a Tony Stanger injury. Now, were, were you around, were you drafted in? As a uh, well, potential I, I, replacement for him. Yeah, I was in the squad just as uh, kind of cover or whatever. And Tony's danger the week before was playing for Hoyk <laughs> and he put his AC joint out. He wasn't in good shape at all. And Tim Telfer and Neiman, he considered it right, you know, you're in. And I thought, guys, he's never going to recover, you know. But uh, thankfully for Scotland, uh, he did because it would have bounced over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if uh, if that might have been uh, you know a Finley Calder try rather than because I'm thinking you'll be five nine five ten Tony's about six two so with his reach yes uh, Underwood might have had a better chance of getting the ball the the kick from Gavin Hastings. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. So it was it was all good, and I you know for, for Tony to get he's a good lad. Uh, so and uh, no, I, I was I, I was probably a bit scared about that. I wasn't, you know, that was towards the end of my career, and you know, I'd struggled with injury and whatever, and I lost a bit of peace and all the rest of it. So no, no, I was very happy for Tony to do the necessary there. Were you still though frustrated about looking for that elusive first score because you'd been denied so many opportunities? You were a fantastic player to assist others in scoring. But in terms of, of your own record, I think there was a chance in, in Romania trial that was disallowed that nowadays, I think, with technology would have been given, would have been a legitimate score for you. Was, was that ever something, perhaps people in the media made too much of that in, in your eyes? Or, or is that something that maybe is a bit, a bit of a thorn in the lion's paw? It was, it was a bit of a confidence thing. Ivan Tukolo has got a magnificent scoring uh, record uh, for Scotland. I think Ivan's got about 15 or 16 or something in it. But it just never happened. And the longer it went on, it was the elephant in the room. It, 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 it did become, I would say, it did become an issue for me because, you know, as a winger, you should be scoring tries and whatever. And I can do it. I can do it at the highest level. But, you know, it just didn't happen. You know, and I never had a, had a run-in or whatever, you know, just a, a dot down, you know, which would have been nice. But 
just one of those things that didn't happen. And I suppose I'm probably glad that the one against Romania was chalked off because if that had been my only Scotland try, it might not have been a great, a great way to go out. But, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think because the South has been disbanded and whatever, but I think I'm still the, the top try scorer for the South. But I was in the end of a conveyor belt there, you know, and, you know, Jim Rennick and Sean Rutherford, Keith Robertson inside you. You know, it just it was uh, it was a ticket to ride. You know, so but yeah, it, it, it's you know people say well, you, you played twenty seven times and you didn't. You know, so yeah, it, it's 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 always people always think it's very funny when they mention it. <laughs> I think it would be remiss not to sort of look at in a little bit more detail about the quality yourself and your Kelsey teammates brought to. Border Sevens and beyond, of course, in the in the nineteen eighties. But yeah, Kelso's appearance at Melrose Sevens Finals was almost a, an annual occasion. You you contested so many of them and many of the other Border Sevens tournaments as well. So after a fairly arduous fifteen season, it was a, a, a nice distraction to go into the spring and the summer with the, this series of tournaments. Hard work to win all of these events, of course. But by goodness, Kelso stamped their, their mark and their authority at that time. Yeah, the sevens thing was quite special. And we, we just had a group of players, exceptional players that came together, you know, uh, at, at the right time. And we were young and, and we were hungry. In 13 years, I think we were in 10 finals at Melrose or something yeah. like that. And, and actually, i just like to mention the late, great Harry Whitaker, who I met a couple of years ago, and I'd always heard tons about him, you know, and and didn't actually just realise what a talent he was. Ian Barnes had done a, a bit on him, and it was just it was just fantastic. I, I met the it was the ten in a row Hoyke seven, and Harry was there, and that was a few years ago. So it was it was great to to see him, and and you know, and and everybody kind of debates who were, you know, who's the best seven and whatever. And you had that fantastic gala seven with Drew Gill on the wing. Uh, I just loved. Uh, Loved watching them, Ducky Patterson, John Frame. You know, a, a lot of us went on, you know, we, we didn't do very well at the Middlesex Sevens. We didn't, didn't quite crack that one. I think I went to nine Hong Kong Sevens. In 82, I think it was the only year since 76, since the inaugural year of Hong Kong Sevens, that New Zealand haven't been present because they there, there was a falling out between New Zealand Federation and, and Hong Kong about the how New Zealand were going to select the team to play in the competition. But something of a rogues gallery when you look at some of the photographs of, of you guys going out to Hong Kong, but the Scottish Borders team reached the final and, and you scored very early on in, in the final in a closely fought game against Australia. Before that, Stuart, uh, the first year we went out with the, the Scottish co-optimist and we had uh, the Brewster brothers, Andy Irvin. Uh, Mike Bigger and myself, Pete Stephen, that played for Heriots in Scotland, Jim Calder. We got to the final that year against Fiji, and it, it was at the old Hong Kong Rugby Football Club ground in Happy Valley. And there was a monsoon uh, started during the semi-finals, and half the pitch was under a foot of water or, or deeper. You know, it was kind of coming up to almost your knees. We were all over Fiji. We were winning all the ball. Uh, I was getting it at the end of the line and skipping round this big uh, Fijian winger, you know, he'd be six foot four, six foot three, he was a big lad, but I was I was pacing him on the outside and then hearing towards the line, but then got into the half with the water 
And of course, my wee legs wouldn't go through the water as quick as his big legs. <laughs> so <laughs> kept getting collared from behind. And eventually, oh, the referee gave a terrible decision, but he had to sort of finish the game. And he awarded them a score. The ball was floating on the water. It was floating on the water. And he awarded them a score. And it was at least 10 yards short of the line. But it was the only way. So, you know, we, we would have won that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not just saying that. We would have won that uh, if it had been dry. And then he came to 82. And so that was the final against Australia. They had Lina, Mark Ella, and big Roger Gould was playing in the, uh, in their forwards. And uh, we played against Australians quite a bit. And Roger Gould was a six foot five full back. Referee that was Eric Anderson. And if you watch it, it, it was actually, it was on YouTube. And I sent the link to Roger Gould. He's, he's come over, he's stayed with me before. He took JG out going for a ball. And JG was away with the goalie. He was out for a bit. And, and, and he was no use to anybody, not least us. And... Eric Anderson was the referee and he was Scottish. So he felt he couldn't send Roger Gould off. And again, you know, we lost it by a try, basically playing with, with, with six people. So that was the story of that one. <laughs> Must have been a, a wonderful time for you. Would Would you like to have had the experience if professionalism had come in maybe 10, 15 years earlier to at least have been given the choice to say, here's a professional contract for you, Roger, either as a sevens player or as a 15s player. You can have this instead of trying to split your life between a, a day job and, and playing this as a hobby. More or less, all the players of my generation would say they loved it as it was. And, you know, to be honest, to earn your living playing rugby, it, it, it just doesn't really do it for me, actually. And I, and I think, you know, uh, the fun that we had... And the fact that I think it'd be quite difficult to be a professional sportsman, actually, you know, because, you know, if, you, if you're going through injury, you're going through a lean patch, you're not playing well. I think, it, you know, if you've got your job and uh, you've got other strings to your bow, I think, I think it's a much more balanced uh, uh, way, way to live. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, the professional players of today will say, oh, you know, they've never known anything else. And they would probably look at us uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago and say, bloody idiots, you know, doing it for nothing and whatever. But it was a pretty special time, Stuart, and yeah. loads, of, loads of great friends, as I'm sure, as I'm sure rugby players now will have. But professional rugby players, you know, they probably don't mingle with a lot of players. You know, they, you know, it's, it's, it's professional. You're not going out for beers. You're not having big laughs uh, with your opposite number and whatever, you know. Um, so, yeah, different time. But I, I wouldn't have changed it for the world, you know. And uh, I, I don't think being paid would have would have sat well with me at. Well, Roger, thank you once again for agreeing to come on to talk to us on the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. Thank you very much for just taking us on a journey through your experiences as a player, both at 15s level and at 7s as well, and, and reflecting on the many successes that you've had and some of the, the, the stories and the characters you've met along the way. Delighted, and thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Tackling Scottish Rugby. That's just about it for this week's edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. But just to finish things off, Dale, the, the story that's obviously had some media attention in the last few days about Bigger and Dull Keith and their grievance with the governing body, I suppose it is, in terms of how last season finished and the, the abrupt ending to the season. 
they're clearly looking to pursue an avenue to get themselves promoted to a higher division for the start of the, the next campaign. It's really a, a fascinating story and it'll be interesting to see how this does pan out for both clubs who clearly, when the season was played, had a lot of success and, and were expecting to do enough to, to guarantee promotion. Yeah, they're obviously arguing the case that Scottish rugby actually made the season null and void. And I think at the time it was probably the right decision, but I think as things have progressed in our lives over the last few months, these decisions could probably be looked at a little bit more retrospectively and I think Bigger and Dalkeith certainly have a case and it's interesting in Bigger and Dalkeith's statement they're saying that they, they obviously want to be promoted for the rightful rewards but we specifically do not seek to relegate any team that does not wish to be relegated now if we look back to the conversation we had with Peter Wright and the conversations we've had there is an opportunity to perhaps readdress some things or, or change the landscape slightly so there might be teams who are going to struggle there might be teams who perhaps want to be relegated because of players' numbers and you know there might be the opportunity for these teams which are getting bigger and, well pardon the pun these teams which are, are growing slightly to be promoted and, and being given the rewards for what happened so certainly the decision at the time by Scottish Rugby was probably the right one in the interest of everybody but perhaps now there's a case to argue so it's certainly going to be interesting what comes of it and I know you know I wasn't paying too much attention to Dalkeith unfortunately at the time knowing that this story was going to go the way it does but bigger at the time we were commentating on games of that level, you know, the likes of Kelso, etc., and Melrose and, and Bigger, and, and Bigger were streets ahead of the other teams. And I think it's only right if they're able to maintain the same type of squad and type of level that they go up. And, and I'm sure, not to with any other information, but I'm sure Dalkeith are perhaps the same. So it's going to be really interesting as to what happens there because I know some teams might have different says in it there might be too many teams want to go down for player numbers but it's going to be interesting either way or what's going to happen there so yeah certainly Bigger and Dalkeith will be looking to try and get that promotion that they without a doubt would have achieved if the, the season had progressed Yeah strong similarities to what happened obviously with the domestic game of football in Scotland when you look at teams that were relegated and were promoted and awarded championships just based on the domestic football season closing at the tail end of March so it will be interesting to see how that pans out for both Dalkeith and Bigger time will tell how that shapes up for both those sides well Dale I've enjoyed the podcast once again great catching up with you yeah good catching up with you too Stuart and we'll see you next week Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.